Oh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to another episode of Align with Lina. And I'm telling you, today's episode is going to light you up. And I know it will because we're going to be uh, connecting with a beautiful young man and a soul, a, a, an incredible being of love and light who has undergone a pretty incredible journey. And it's near and dear to my heart because I can see him as a son. And as you all know, who know my story, you know, I, I had an, a journey, quite an adventure with my son, my youngest son when he went through four years of a drug addiction. And then we went through through creating our own program to assist him in being able to move beyond that. So today, the guest that I have, Ryan, is going to share with you his journey. And, and it's been quite the interesting journey. There's going to be a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and a lot of expanding our awareness about what addiction can lead us to. So please join me in welcoming this amazing soul. Ryan, thank you for joining me here today. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to be with you, even if not in person, uh, virtually. And um, I'm just excited to share a part of my journey in hopes that it allows other people to feel like their story is also important to share with others. Because as we share, it helps break down um, preconceived notions we have about other people. It helps us break down um, stereotypes and helps, helps us just connect with one another, which in this time right now is so vital. Connection is key to, to healthy mental um, health. And, you know, it really does do a, a lot of, of good for our souls when we can connect with people. So. Absolutely. And you know what, that's the reason I started these, these interviews about three years ago, done over a hundred and some odd of them. And it's because it, it gives us an opportunity to see that it, we're all the same. Just like me, anybody, anybody can have a journey to connecting to aligning with source. If I can do it, anybody can. So I love to bring regular people. That's why I'm not interviewing Oprah because everybody already knows her story, but you and I and, and uh, just everyday regular people, we're going through incredible transformation. And to me, that makes it so much uh, more real in many, many, many ways. So let me just start with the same question. We start with everybody. When did you begin to realize that there was more to life than what you have been conditioned, taught, programmed, indoctrinated, whatever word you want to use, people use all of those words here. When did you realize that there was just way more than what you thought you were supposed to be, do and have in this world? So that's a, that's a, that's a question that can encompass my, most of my whole journey and story. <laughs> but, I, but honestly, I was really connected to source divine God from a really young age. I would say from three or four, I felt really connected. Um, I had a great aunt who was was very, very Christian, um, a more conservative Christian, but through her sharing stories and sharing her faith. So it was even, I didn't have, she didn't really have to even tell me words, but I could see her praying. I could see her love for God and it sparked and ignited this love for God for me. But what happened is, you know, as I realized I was a part of the LGBTQ plus community and that I was different than the people around me, I started to think, wow, 
God must not like me because that's the narrative I hear around me. That's what I hear from my conservative Christian family. That's what I heard from society. That's what I heard in school. Um, and so I, I turned away from my faith. I turned away from that connection with the divine. I turned away from my, um, yeah, my God, my, my version of God, because my God was like, I love you. You're so great. And, you know, you know, just it, it was a different type of God than even like I was taught from my family. But then I heard that rhetoric, that that talk that, you know, and it wasn't from everyone in my family. It was just from a couple members. And it really impacted the way I thought of myself and the way I thought of God and how I thought God didn't love me. So through that, I was led to this like self-loathing. Um, I The first time I thought about ending my own life, I was six years old. Um, you know, by the time I was 12, I was experimenting with drugs and alcohol. By the time I was 13, I was self-mutilating and cutting. Uh, and by the time I was 14, I was on harder drugs uh, more consistently. By the time I was 20, I was self-medicating to such an extent that you would be like, how are you functioning? But I was using drugs as, as a way to self-medicate because mm -hmm. I hated myself. Mm -hmm. And then, um, crazy enough, you would think this would be the, the awakening experience for me, but my daughter was born. I have a 10-year-old daughter and she is amazing, by the way. But when she yeah. was born, I went into a spiral and I did the opposite of what most people would do. Most people would say, oh, you have a child. Like, I have a child. I got I to gotta get things in line and I got to get rid of these drugs. And I got to get rid of, you know, learn how to love myself so I can teach my daughter this. And that first year she was born, it was that spiral downward. And I started using opioids every single day. And um, I had this, this moment. Um, I was sitting in the car. It was one day before my 23rd birthday. And I heard this song come on the radio. And I was like, if I keep doing what I'm doing, my child's going to end up in a really sad place. She's going to be without a dad, either metaphorically or literally, uh, because I was going to end up in jail, dead, on the side of the road, um, so addicted that I couldn't pull myself out of the addiction, or she was just going to end up without me. So I vowed that day to end all hard drugs. So I stopped all the hard drug use. And roughly a month after that, I was sitting with my drug dealer. Um, her name's Marie and sat with my drug dealer and she was telling me about her faith. She was telling me about her love for God. And I thought, wow, M M Marie, you know, identifies as LGBTQ plus. She's a drug dealer and she has faith. Um, and I thought, wow, I had that faith when I was little, that feeling that you're explaining I had when I was three or four years old and I lost why did I lose it? So we talked about faith that night and um, believing, believing God. Because at that point, I, I would have self-identified as like atheist or agnostic, not even spiritual. Um, and had this amazing conversation with her. And just it was one of those conversations where simply she shared her story and it inspired me to live my authentic truth, even though I was still figuring out what that was. So I went to the bathroom, I fell on my knees and I said, God, I need you to save my life. Like I'm, I might be off hard drugs for the last, last month, but it is not looking pretty for me re regardless of the hard drugs or not. I was still, you know, smoking weed and drinking every day and 
partying and putting myself in these unhealthy and unhappy situations. Um, so I did that. And the next morning I woke up, um, I ended up taking Marie to work. Um, she was a server. So I took her to work and on the way to work, we talked about faith. And I said, now that I believe in God, I really do. I believe, I believe again. How do I have faith? How do I hold strong to that faith? And she said, great question. You know, this is something that a lot of, you know, I myself have struggled with. And I think a lot of people struggle with. And I said, well, I got to work on it. I got to figure it out and work on it. And she goes, you will, you will. And she gave me a hug and I gave her a kiss on the cheek, sent her into work. Um, Cause she was not only my drug dealer, she was my best friend. And um, at, at one time a roommate because her story's interesting, but it goes more into it. And in my book, my drug dealer brought me to God, um, but dropped her off at work pulled out in the one license plate in Kentucky. Um, I, I live in Northern Kentucky, greater Cincinnati area. And, you know, the specialized license plate, there can only be one of, of each thing yeah. per state. So the one license plate in Kentucky that could say faith was right in front of me. Ah. And I said, well, there we go. I said, not that I needed that, that, con that confirmation, but in that moment I did. Um, and I, 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 I just solidified. You're on your the right journey. You're on the right path. Oh and my that's how it all God. started. And this was nine years ago. So I'm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Nine years ago. That's amazing. So, what, how incredible. So, that, okay. So many things here I want to touch base <laughs> on. How, how beautiful that your drug dealer brought you to, to God, brought you to faith, brought you to understanding that you don't have to be a drug user anymore to find a high, a true, true, natural, honest high. And I hear this really often. I've been coaching for 15 years and I've been on my journey to, to faith for 20. And I knew that it wouldn't take very long before I would start helping other people, which is exactly what you're doing through the writing your book. Some of us are called into that. We begin to find a way out of the insanity and then we want to help others find their way out as well. So thank you for listening to that voice that nudged you into that. Something that I hear often from people that I interview is that they had this knowingness as a child um, of their faith or connection. And here you have your sweet, I think you said great aunt, who is uh, a, a Christian. But it doesn't matter what she is. What she is modeling for you is a deep connection to that very connection you had. So you were getting validation about that was natural and normal and okay. But what happens to every single one of us, because what has come for me to teach is, is basically a, a bird's eye view of the journey. And we all go through the exact same steps. There are six fundamental steps from conception to enlightenment. And we all enter through the portal of conception. We all lose ourselves through the process of learning and, and programming and conditioning. And we all get stuck in, in the, the face of control, where we try to control our emotions, control the outside world. And for most of us, you know what I'm going to say for every one of us, because this is, this is one of the things that I have become very clear about. And the more I study other people, other teachings, mine, um, uh, 
the more I study other teachings from teachers that are my contemporaries or who've been around for thousands of years, my primary teacher is Jesus. That's who I connect with. That's who I communicate with. That's who gives me all of my teachings is we all we all go through the same process of disconnecting from God. We must go through the same process of reconnecting, realigning, aligning. That's why I call this align with line. That's really aligned with God. You're just sharing with me how you align with God. So that's why I call it aligning with Lina or align with Lina. But anyhow, everybody enters into a phase of controlling our disconnection, the pain of that disconnection. It's more than we can bear. Very, very few of us, very, very few of us have been raised um, with a conscious enough parent or a conscious enough great aunt or relative that helps us maintain that connection. So all of us enter into the world of the ego, the world of separation, the world of disconnection. And then we have to start those next three phases, which is the, the return. And it starts with curiosity. There's got to be another way. If we don't get curious about another way, we're stuck trying to control with the only way that we know. And Einstein said, that's the definition of insanity, doing the same freaking thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. So here you are, you have this connection, you lose the connection. And for you, the loss of that connection came because you thought you were, there was something wrong with you that God couldn't possibly love a, an LGBTQ plus person. So take me to that moment because I want to unpack that a little bit more. Here in your mind, you you have, well, in your heart, you have a connection with God, but you're hearing that something about your physical body, something about your sexual orientation that you know is natural to you because it's who you are. I mean, it's the body that you carry. Take me to the mind of that child that is shifting from a, a faith in God probably feeling really good about who you are to beginning to question and doubt who you are, because that's what causes the split for all of us, whether it's through sexual orientation, through um, our, our color, our gender, financial status, through something, religion, we all go through that split. And that's the split. That's the disalignment that we are healing to bring back into connection because if we're not connected inside, we can't connect outside with anybody else. So please walk us through that experience. And how old were you, please? Yeah. So I started feeling it I, ever since I have cognitive remembering thought. Um, I just remember feeling different. I just felt, you know, so my, my brother, you know, was two years older than me. He would do certain things. He would play certain sports and just be like naturally good at them. And I would try to play sports and I'd be like mediocre at best or, um, you know, certain guy friends I had would like certain things. And I just didn't, I wouldn't connect with that. I connected with this really right brain part of myself that was really creative and artistic and wanted to share like emotion and wanted to hear more, um, more kind of like in-depth conversations or be a part of those or wanted to to not it wasn't for me the same thing that like the guys around me like you know it wasn't video games and it wasn't sports and it wasn't you know cars and match you know matchbox cars or whatever i mean it wasn't it wasn't those things for me it was you know these things that i saw other 
girls doing or females, you know, like easy bake ovens, you know, I love to, 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 to put the ingredients together and make something. And, you know, I came from a really loving nuclear household where like, they're like, sure, you want an easy bake oven? Cool. Get an easy bake oven. Like we support you. We love you. You're, you're cool. Let's, let's make something. Um, so my nuclear family, like my mom and my stepdad and my, you know, my brothers were all really loving. Um, and obviously at times we have our own things that come up in the journey, but especially when I was a teenager and uh, trying to self-destruct from the self-loathing that I that felt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that self-loathing really started as a child and it was really a separation from feeling normal for me. Yeah. So, so you... Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So I, I just want to insert here for those who are listening that for all of us, it starts through comparison. We we compare what I'm feeling, what I'm doing versus what somebody who looks like me, who should be the way that I am supposed to be, it, what they're doing. And that comparison begins the process of, of judgment, of, of feeling like there's something wrong with me because I'm not like them. Or there's something wrong with them because they're not like me. Either way, uh, but anyhow. So, all right. Wow, how wonderful that you had that nuclear family that was so accepting. Yeah. And take so take us from there. You begin the self-loathing, and you were very young. You said at what age you started cutting at 13. But when did the self-loathing? Because cutting one one of my children did that. Cutting comes way after you've already initiated the self-loathing because the self-loathing starts with self-talk before it goes into self-harm. So share a little bit about the self-loathing. Um, when did that begin for you? How old were you when you think you began to have those thoughts? Like, well, like you really recognize them? Really recognizing them was probably um, fifth grade. And in between fifth and sixth grade, I realized... I don't want, um, I, I want, I was going to a different school where, where most of the people in my school weren't going to the way like the district lines were. It was only like 10 kids or something from the school I went to that were going to my new school. So I said, I have a new chance. Um, and I was hyper aware of like social structures and situations and like the cool kids and said, I have a chance now to, to, um, you know, be well liked and to, and I was always seeking this, this affirmation from the time I was really little. Um, and it came from that division of feeling different, but I always need that affirmation. Like you're good. You're okay. You're doing great. And I think all kids need that, but I needed it to this like different degree to where, you know, I was going into sixth grade and I said, well, I want people to think that I'm straight. And I want people, because I knew at that point um, I was somewhere in the LGBT community. I didn't understand it fully, but I was said, I want to, I want to be like those other guys that everyone thinks are like cool and cute and the girls like, and, you know, I'd had times growing up when I had a lot of girlfriends, you know, in like elementary school, like really like, you know, kindergarten, the third, fourth grade and that fourth and fifth grade were kind of rough for me. I switched schools and it was a different crew of people and. You know, one of the people the first day I was there were like, are you a boy or a girl? And that stuck with me because I was like, obviously I'm a boy, but just because I looked a little more feminine, you know, looked a little more feminine and, and had a little bit more of a feminine uh, mannerisms and was more into arts and crafts and more creativity. And, and I was often, you know, made fun of for that kind of thing. But it wasn't like a daily thing, but it was just like those little, little, little things that would 
start planting seeds in me. Like, oh, yeah. wow, other boys don't get said, are you a boy or a girl? Like, that's pretty rare. You know, I did hear, you know, I heard it with another girl in fourth or fifth grade and someone said the same thing to her. And I said, so then I started comparing myself to her and saying, am I like her? She seems really different than most girls and I'm really different than most boys. Then I started comparing myself not just to boys, but to other girls and to other people and my brothers. And, and then it just kind of went into spiral. And by the time I entered sixth grade, I literally went online and downloaded um, like the stats for every baseball player for every team. And I spent, you can imagine how long that would take. I, I download these stats, their batting averages or whatever. I don't even know anything about sports, but I went and downloaded them because in my mind, if I could memorize those statistics about these ball players, then I would automatically, guys would think I'm cool. I wouldn't feel like different. I would feel like a, a man. I would feel like a boy, you know, a boy, a man, a guy, a growing teenager boy. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I downloaded them. Um, I never once opened that, that it was a floppy disk back in the day, but it was like one or two floppy disks. And I think it filled a, a whole floppy disk and a half or something. And it was a lot of information. And I was like, something clicked in me. And I was like, even if I, you know, it was a day or two before I started sixth grade, I said, even if I memorize all these facts, I'm never gonna be like them. <laughs> um, and, and that was really hard. So I went into sixth grade with like this bravado of like, ooh, let me do some things I know I'm not supposed to do. And let me not be the goody, the teacher's pet all the time, like I was in elementary school. And let me kind of be more adventurous. and. And, and that was where this kind of like deception of myself started, right? Like I'm not being my true authentic self even yeah. more than before, you know, before I wasn't too aware of it. It was like that sixth grade moment that I realized, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm really not being me. Well, and we have to go through that, that process of self-deception because that's the only way that we can create the persona that it's our ego construct that has to cut, that has to uh, numb. So the true you, the true soul that we are basically goes to the to the background. If you imagine a house with multiple floors that has a basement, it's like the soul was living full out in all the floors, uh, you know, the primary floors. And then little by little, we begin to send it back down into the basement, into the corner. We start to put all kinds of boxes in front of it, you know, all, all these things to cover it up, to hide it with all of the self-deception until we forget that our true essence, our authentic self is stuck in a corner in the basement, which is why this journey takes such a long time. We have to descend into our deepest, darkest places to retrieve the truth of who we are but that that to, to have that journey of returning to who we are we first have to hide who we are and it happens through self-deception i was kind of chuckling when you were talking about baseball i i grew up in the dominican republic and i had a professional um a, a, an uncle who was a professional ball players and the best ball players ever come from the dominican republic just in case you didn't know that little uh <laughs> baseball stat but I was a massive, massive baseball fanatic. And when we, we live here in Atlanta, Georgia, and in the early 1990s, the Braves were 
they were the Cinderella team. And I'm telling you, I knew the stats of every player. I could tell you their batting average. I could tell you everything about them. Um, so I, I absolutely chuckled with that because I loved it and, you know, gave that up a long time ago. But anyhow, yeah, that's not easy to, to memorize. <laughs> so here you are in sixth grade beginning to to dishonor your holy self and beginning to become who you thought ne you needed to be. What was that like in, in those middle school, high school years? Because you went into cutting, you went into, you started drugs then. What, what was it like go, starting the cutting process? Because again, I've got my daughter who went through that. And I'd like to hear from you because I only know, well, I, she had a couple of friends, but what was that like going into cutting and why did you even start that? Yeah, so sixth grade and seventh grade were okay. You know, I was chameleon, chameleoning into whatever social group or situation. And from the outside, you'd be like, oh, you have some friends and you definitely have some girlfriends, definitely would date girls, you know, almost all the time. And um, by eighth grade, um, I had another one of these moments where one of my cousins, she said, Ryan, you're, you know, you're dressing in like really baggy clothes. You're wearing like these really baggy jeans. Like what kind of message are you sending to like not only girls, but other people that you might want to be friends with? And I was like, I don't know. And she took me to Abercrombie and Fitch and I bought my first, like, they called it a preppy outfit. And I guess preppy can be seen as good or bad, but they were saying in a good way because they wanted me to be like Gap Abercrombie. And I was so easily influenced because I noticed when I wore those clothes, people did look at me different than the clothes I was wearing before that were kind of like darker, you know, like all blacks and whatever. And I, you know, got a pair of flip flops and I got a pair of jeans and I got a little polo and started eighth grade, almost like a neat, a new version of myself. I ran for student council to give context. I became the vice president of student council for my middle school and felt like this like acceptance that I've always been longing for the last few years in between like fourth grade and seventh grade. And that's funny because even when I felt that, that's when the cutting started. Um, it started during that time. I had a, a girlfriend who was cutting um, and thought, well, why is she doing that? And, and then I started myself and it sounds silly, but it's like those social situations you find yourself in sometimes mold you when you don't know who you are mm -hmm. <laughs> or you don't, you know, obviously no eighth, eighth grader knows exactly who they are, but yeah. I definitely was like really like not connected to any authentic pieces of me. Yeah. And I started cutting um, and, and I had a lot of pain inside because of all this hiding, hiding my sexuality. By this time I was like, oh, you're definitely in the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, I realized that way before, but it kept, it was solidified when I was like having dreams about other guys in sixth and seventh grade. And, you know, instead of having dreams about girls or mostly, you know, I'd have mixed dreams, but I really started being more attracted to males than females. And um, was really trying to figure out like, can I just live my life like this and not tell anybody? And that created this like intense pain inside. Mm -hmm. And so the cutting, um, and this is a, a thing I hear across the board, people do it because it releases it, it releases pain and and it kind of releases endorphins and other chemicals in, in our brain. And and I wasn't able to do that naturally through, you know, like finding something I was really passionate about or, or getting exercise or whatever that a lot of yeah. other people find that. I found it in that moment doing that thing that I thought literally a month before when my 
when one of my girlfriends was hospitalized for it, um, I thought, why don't I do that too? Like, I don't like my life. I don't like myself. She obviously doesn't like her life and doesn't like herself is what she said. And maybe it makes you feel better or something. I don't, you know, what do I do? And and that's- Well, yeah, and that does a couple of things. It, it, it diverts the attention of your inner pain to the, the soul pain to the physical pain. And in many ways, we can tolerate, we actually are designed to tolerate physical pain more so than than soul pain. Ask any any woman who gives birth, we can tolerate some painful shit. And so anyways, it, it is, it's a diversion of the most excruciating pain is the pain of self-deception and then you add that physical pain for a little while you have relief from the worst pain that that secondary physical pain now it uh, you know it's a it's a piece it's a piece of cake it's a it's not so bad but then that begins to create its own egoic problems because it begins to give you an addiction to to shift one pain to the other with this this self harm. Um, so as you know, it's it's a it's a no win situation. But it in the mind that gets addicted to that, it makes sense. And that's what people don't understand is that it's it's making sense in a warped way, but it is assisting the person doing that to not feel as bad as they used to feel. And anyways, incomprehensible to one who doesn't understand what's going on inside. So then you you move out of cutting and you go into the drugs. What was that transition? Uh, why did you feel internally the need to make that transition? Yeah. So at that point, um, you know, I didn't cut every day. I would say the first couple of years I cut, you know, every few months and then it trailed off and it'd be like once a year, twice a year. until I was 19. So that's when I eventually stopped cutting. Um, And that's a whole journey in itself. But the drugs and alcohol started right around that same time, like, I would say within four to six months from the start of the cutting, I was drinking and I had already snuck a little alcohol when I was in like sixth and seventh grade. But I when I started really drinking, and I would binge drink, I went on a trip with a friend who was older than me. And um, his brother-in-law was like, yeah, I'll buy you all some alcohol. And, you know, my friend was like, I don't know, a sophomore or junior in, in high school. And I was in eighth grade, but, um, obviously that didn't matter to him. Um, but I say that because I think it's important that as adults, we realize the decisions we make impact children. So obviously, but I think sometimes as adults, you're like, oh, I want to be the fun parent. Or I want to be the fun uncle or whatever. But like, you really need to be careful because an eighth grader or even a sophomore, junior or senior in high school, whatever they're not ready for those for those experiences yet to the degree at least that i experienced them so i binge drank for three days in a row four days in a row um from this i bought a hundred dollars worth of alcohol or maybe 120 dollars or something i bought a lot of alcohol and mm-hmm. um uh we drank a lot of it but i had some left over but but this that was like my 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 gateway into self-medicate i i felt i felt like I could just be me. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I could just go around this party, be woo, be wild, be fun, but also like I don't have to hide who I am, or at least at a certain point in the drinking process, I was like, oh yeah, I don't really care. I don't care. I care about anything. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Points when you black out and you don't even know what you're doing. So you totally. To keep yourself accountable. <laughs> and, and unlike the cutting, this this is, you know, the, the cutting, you've got to endure some, some pain with the drinking. It's like you go into the happy place, you know, you, 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 you move beyond the physical into, like you were saying, just you don't even care. So that probably made sense. Oh, this is maybe a better way for me to to not feel my discomfort and to enter into um, the the numbing aspect. You know, you were talking about how, um, yeah, adults. You know, we we do things not realizing how it's going to impact people. But at the same time, we have soul contracts that are always at play. And certain things that certain people do without conscious awareness are setting us up on, on a journey. And that is part of the recognition of part of the, the, the part of, of forgiveness. You know, we, we go on to forgive because you wouldn't be able to touch the people that you are had that adult not done that that thing that they did <laughs> so i always like to to balance things because if if we get too much on the you know watch out for what you're doing we don't know we don't know how that's going to work out so that's definitely um an important thing all right so you you start the drinking and now this is consuming your life yeah. Take, and take us to, yeah, take us to that stage of life. Yeah. So the, the drugs started shortly after. So I smoked, the first time I smoked weed was in between eighth grade and freshman year. Um, obviously hanging out with older kids that drove and stuff like that. And um, then the pain pills and the other types of medication, you know, pill wise pills and different things. Those popped up a a few months after that. So it was like within a year, I went from, you know, maybe having like one drink, you know, when I was younger, wherever, to like binge drinking, to smoking weed, to sneaking out of my house, to doing pills, to, you know, one of my first suicide attempts was within that first year. Um, and it wasn't a conscious suicide attempt, but I purposely was mixing uppers and downers and snorted them um, as I was really drunk because I knew that alcohol a lot of times increases those um, you know, both of those medications. And so I mixed them and I, that was my goal. Um, and the moment I didn't know that until later on when I was reflecting on my life and I was like, wow, that was definitely my first suicide attempt. I knew what I was doing. I purposely was trying to be, uh, to not feel the pain and to not feel what I was feeling and to not be me. I said, I, I want to be as far away from me as I can. And if that means not on this earth, then that's okay. Um, and from there, it just kept going. I mean, and then it eventually outside of high school, the hard drug use really kind of leveled off. And I really was just self-medicating with like copious amounts of marijuana, like not like a normal amount. I not that there's any normal, who knows what a normal amount is. But for me, it was like a lot. I mean, it was a lot. And if I, when I tell people now, like how much I was smoking every day, they're like, that is an extreme amount of marijuana for one individual. And I was just medicating. I would go to school. I was in college. I, I somehow got good enough grades, you know, or whatever and made it through. And you know, I was always, you know, in this, you know, like this, the, the AP classes and the advanced classes and stuff. And I, it would be funny. I'd walk in sometimes and people would be like, Ryan, you're in the wrong class and uh, you don't belong here. And it was just as silly as that sound, not even. And I made, I made fun of it or light of it. Then it was like, haha, y'all are so funny. Like, 
just because I'm a stoner or whatever, just because I'm a party, doesn't mean I can't be smart. But really, even that was like this like self-deception piece that I played in my world. Like I wouldn't even own my intelligence. I wouldn't even own anything that made me feel good or look good in general, or could be a positive thing because I literally hated myself so much. And then I was always just seeking like instant gratification and affirmation from people in ways that I thought were alluring. So to me, I didn't see being smart as like a positive, as much of as a positive as like being cool or liked or being seen as someone that like is a partier. Like to me, I, I really identified with that party, like, label and and thought that was like really important for me yeah. and outside of, of high school then in, in college like i said i really just kind of like went inside and started like internal as far as like i knew like wow you have bigger issues at play here and let's just medicate the crap out of those with some marijuana and some drinking of course mixed in but it was really weed like all day every day um and i would steal and and, and lie and, and manipulate people Whereas like when I was growing up, it was like I was like lying or manipulating to not get caught in the things I was doing. But as an adult, I was doing it because I wanted I wanted something that I couldn't have. Um, you know, like I felt, and, and that was really like a whole journey in itself, right? Like when you when you find that you're you're really really disconnected from your, you know, when I felt like I, I could remember that little kid in me, and I was like, you are just so. Where did you get lost? Yeah. you're a lost person in this moment and let's just medicate the crap out of it so you don't dwell on that you're you feel so incomplete that that is oh goodness yes and i i cannot imagine a single person who is totally numbing themselves isn't feeling that you are so lost now let's 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 just not even uh correct this let's just numb ourselves let's numb the pain of that disconnection because what happens is that that distance between you and you gets wider and wider and wider and wider and our our higher self just goes further deep deeper down into that basement corner it's like it's the steps it's just steps little by little by little by little until we're totally completely so freaking discontent, so dark. We go so dark, we turn off our light, dim it down so much. Um, you know, with my son, when he, and he started right before uh, freshman year, and he basically his high school years were the year of this intense drug adventure. And his dad and I were divorced, and I had just remarried. Stepdad was not happy about. Uh, you know, a, a drug addict now, you know, he knew him as this wonderful kid that he was so happy to be his stepdad. And all of a sudden now we've got a problem in the house. And so my, my then husband went into basically fear, fear that the cops were going to come fear. We were going to deal with, with anything that was going to stain his reputation, his, his image. And then Spencer's dad went into that, that fear we got to fix you we got to we got to stop this we got to change what you're doing we're not under my watch um and and frankly you know they were really afraid of how what spencer was doing was going to affect them and i'm already in my journey i'm already coaching i'm already teaching i'm already receiving downloads for workshops to teach about those six faces how to return to ourselves which by the way it's it's a free uh course on my website if you go to lineorlando.com 
download it. It's called the soul's journey. It'll, in about an hour, it will guide you through those six stages, super short, but very, very impactful so that you know, where are you? And we're always kind of going around until we begin to solidify ourselves and grant ourselves a little bit more in, in the, the, the phases that are the, what I'm going to call the, the spiritual maturing phases where we're, we're gaining wisdom. But anyways, with, with Spencer, I was like, okay, here's a deal. He had already been in, in rehab. He had spent a month away in, in rehab. He was in 12 steps and all of those things. They were assisting, but they were not giving him any kind of, um, a, there, there was no motivation to give up the thing that made him feel good, no matter how much they were telling him it was bad for him and how much they would pull him away from it for a week or a month or whatever it might be. So I, I said to Spencer, sweetie, here, let's make a deal. You can keep doing drugs. I'm not going to tell you to take away the one thing that is the most loving thing you can do for yourself. Because in the moment that you numb yourself, you're saying, I love myself enough not to feel pain. So you can keep doing that. But you've got to let me coach you. When you come out of this high, you're going to hit a low. We got to talk about this low. Why are you feeling so low? Because I gave birth to you. I know the divine being that you are. I know your brilliance and your magnificence. I know your light and it's just been dimmed down. So you let me coach you and you keep doing your drugs. So we, we created a deal and that's how we went through our four year journey. He would have his moments. He'd get high with his drugs. He'd come down and we would talk about how to, how to get his high back from his, his inner light, his inner being. And it wasn't easy. I'm going to tell you, as you probably know, it was not an easy journey because it was an up and down. It was a constant. We were swinging like a pendulum from one side to the other. Um, but it was the most amazing years of my life to see somebody who had such a brilliant light totally, completely turn its back, his back on his light, as I'm sure. Well, it's what you did. You turn your back on your light and then you have to go through the journey to realign with that light. That's not an easy journey because then you you can't numb yourself from facing yourself. That's when you make the commitment to face your shit sober. Tell me about that part of the journey. Yeah, yeah. So just back up a little bit. Um, yeah, that, that drug and alcohol, like I told you, when my daughter was born, you would think it'd get better, got way worse. I came out around that time. Um, that's a whole other story for another day. But I came out and thought, oh gosh, I'm gonna be loved and accepted by this community. I'm gonna, you know, party. I'm gonna live this life I always wanted in college, but didn't feel like, cause I was so inside, you know, like secretive with my drug use and just like, was like feeling all these things. And um, that's when the hard drugs hit. And mm -hmm. through that, you know, again, and, and, and every day, I mean, it was every day for months and months and when I got to a point where I had that message that all drugs, like you need to stop these hard drugs, I stopped, had that conversation with my drug dealer a month later. Within three months, had another conversation with a friend where God spoke to me and said, you need to stop all drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, pretty much any toxins entering your body. And um, I have a message for you. And that is that you're here to help people love and accept themselves. Funny enough, um, when you, when that's your, your mission, you have to also learn how to love and accept yourself. 
<laughs> so, you know, that was about nine years ago. And I started really, um, you know, looking inside. I, I, I had that message and had that shift moment, went home and found this movie by Wayne Dyer on the shelf called The Shift, oh, yeah. which really just ex explained word for word what I just went through. And I said, yeah, this is it. This is, and from that moment for the next few months, everything was brighter. It was like my whole world was in HD and like I could take off the, the foggy glasses and the fog lifted and I could really see life. And I was so appreciative and my body started to heal. I lost 80 pounds around that time through my, you know, through that last, you know, eight months. And then, you know, I was healthy. Like I could breathe. I had asthma and I was like, I don't need to use my inhaler anymore. I felt, you know, I'm sure part of that's the drugs and alcohol, but part of it was like, I feel like God, the divine gave me this like second chance at life mm -hmm. and said, but you have a purpose and a mission. And it was really clear from the beginning that when I got those messages that I need to follow them. Um, so for the next year, that first year into my sobriety, I um, fell off the wagon multiple times. I would say about once a month, I would go smoke or drink or whatever. Um, and then I eventually had a message the last time I smoked, smoked or drank or anything. And um, it was pretty much just like, you're not gonna be able to do the work you're gonna do easily. It's gonna make things more complicated if you're dr drinking and smoking and whatever. Like you just, for you and your journey, not that it needs to be for everyone in their journey. I don't ever preach complete sobriety to, unless people are really um, addicts. And even then it's everyone's situation is different. So everyone's sobriety looks different. But for me, it was like nothing at all. Um, and as soon as I did that, all of these things opened up. I, I was already kind of doing these classes um, through the School of Metaphysics, um, learning how to connect to myself. Um, the school was like this, it's a nonprofit organization and a school. I mean, I had an hour to two hours of homework a night for the school. Like, it was a real thing. Um, and it was about a year long program and there's four stages and I was in the first stage and I learned how to meditate. I learned about world religions, about dream interpretation, about connecting to myself, about concentration and visualization. And around that same time, I was also introduced to this other hands-on meditation called oneness, which is out of, out of India. And um, it's kind of morphed over the years to different things. But um, in the moment, it was like this hands-on group meditation. And like I said, that's a whole, a whole story for another day too, how I got there and how that was put into my life. But I really started to learn that I could heal myself and help heal others and help heal the world. Um, and that God's message for me, my mission that I was given was not just a journey where I could go out and give people self-love, give people self-acceptance, that for one, I had to learn how to really do that myself. And like, I'm still on that journey. I think, you know, I think that's not a journey that you just, that most people, I would say almost nobody ever really reaches full because you're, as you learn and grow, you learn more about areas where you could do better or do different, you know, not even better, but just different, where you can realize that you still have areas to grow and develop in. And to me, that's like this process of, of self-love and self-acceptance and, um, you know, self-esteem and self-worth and self-value. Like these are all things that are connected and they're connected to like this, this tether of always learning and growing and at least staying open to that. And so what I realized is, yeah, as you teach people how to love themselves, if you teach people, you know, these basic skills on like meditation and how to get connected with their divine, whatever that may be, even if they identify as atheist and that inner divine is just themselves, it's just love. You know, I throw, I throw the God word out a lot of times and throw the divinity and throw all of that, not, not out for myself, but out in conversations I have with other people. 
And I just, I just connect with love. Like, because to me, that love is, is God and God is love. And, and it's all the same to me, but for yeah. some people that God, the word God itself is just a huge trigger. I mean, my partner's one of those people, like he doesn't love the word God because he came from roots that, that really hurt him from like a Christian context. So, you know, we use the word divine or we use the word love. I mean, interchangeably, you know, the divine the creator, love, oneness. It is. It is. It is. It is all the same. You could call it life. You could call it whatever. It doesn't matter what we call it. And how how amazing. Yes, absolutely beautiful. There is something that has become also very clear is that those who are being called to be in service to others, they they don't grow up and have perfect lives. They all had to fall and go to the place that they got in a hole and learn how to get out of it. Because if you're not in the hole, why would you need to teach anybody how to get out of a hole that they're not in? So the teachers go into a hole, learn to come out of that hole, and then show show the way to others is what Jesus was teaching. I um, You were talking about how people have issues with God. You know, I grew up Catholic and I had my issues with God. I, I don't like God. I mean, it's like, oh my God, this old bearded man on the cloud, like Santa Claus telling me I'm naughty or nice. I don't think so. You know, you, you get no power over me. So I, I tell one in no relationship with that. And through the journey, I was guided eventually to study A Course in Miracles. And A Course in Miracles is all about God and Holy Spirit and, you know, all these these things, salvation. I was like, oh, my God, I didn't like the Bible. Now I'm reading this. <laughs> but but I, it was it was where I was supposed to be because uh, a mission that was given to me that I have been resisting until just recently is to to help people fall in love with God again with God, 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 the word God. And even though I was told to call it GESEL for a while, which is just an acronym, G-S-E-L, God is the source of the energy of love. It was move, It was easing me into the acceptance of what God is because it needed me to get over my association with the word until the word means nothing. It, it, has, it, it really means nothing. It's, it's a neutral word for me. God is love, is life, is is what I am. That's why, you know, God and the Father, God and I are one. God, Father, Mother, God, whatever, it doesn't matter. And the acceptance of that power, because you were talking about, you know, this, this is a journey that we're going to go on expanding forever. But actually, the journey changes. Sure. It It is a journey of seeking until you find. And when you find, it's a journey of releasing, of giving all that you found. So th there is a moment when you realize, oh, my gosh, th there, there's nothing else for me to, to discover. I, I've arrived at that place where now I am what I am. Then the journey is all about, okay, how do I give this away? So the, the learning is about the realization that through the sharing, through the giving unconditionally, because there can be no condition, you haven't arrived if there's still conditions. You haven't arrived to that, to that place where you have 
the awakening is that you have brought your true self out of the basement and it lives in the full freaking house. The house is lit up with the essence of who you are. Now it's about how do we take it out of the house? How do we let this light go out? Because the journey, our human journey is about how we, you know, snuff the light. And then this, this journey, the awakening, the self-awareness is where is the light? But the, the awakening is, no, I am the light. I know that I am, and there's no longer a doubt. And that's when what happens is what you were saying, you begin to heal physically, mentally, emotionally, which today we're in the midst of a, of a great awakening, which is through this pandemic, through this virus, through these jobs, through all this stuff that's happening. It is all an opportunity for people to see do you have faith? Do you have faith? Because if you have faith, you have no fear about none of that. And and it is a, a process where many are looking at their their addictions to jobs, to the government. You know, so many people are addicted to safety from the government, to medicine from the outside, and avoiding that intuitive shaman that we all have inside of us that needs to be activated. So so you go through your journey and you find your your connection to source. You come to the place where you know, you know that you know that you know, and you're not going to go back. You, you can't stuff all that light. What inspired you to write your book? Yeah, so I, I had been, you know, when I graduated my undergrad, it was like a miracle because I had been using drugs, you know, there was a whole year I almost failed out of school because I was using drugs. Um, that first year my daughter was born, finished my undergrad, a couple of years went by and I was really getting this message, like, go back and get your master's degree in MBA. And I was like, oh, that sounds awful. Um, but I went through the, th with the guidance and I really did what I was asked and told, um, what I was guided to do. And through that process, we started a nonprofit called Love Must Win. And that nonprofit really was just about helping people um, get to a place where they, they could love and accept themselves in a place where they felt safe and welcomed just as they are. So through that process, I started doing this work in the community. Um, and in the last about year or so, I got the message, um, and I wor started working on a book a couple, a year before that, but I really got the message. You need to step out uh, from the nonprofit and do the work that you're going to do in the world without like hiding behind the nonprofit world. And um, not that I won't be involved in help and volunteer, but I was the executive director for that, for the Love Must Win for five years. And, you know, during that time, by the end of it, um, a couple of years ago, I decided to go back and get a PhD um, in leadership studies. I was guided, well, I didn't really decide. I was, I was once again guided. And so I was like, blindly kind of went with, you know, blindly went and said, sure. Um, and started working on uh, work around religious trauma which really paralleled with my story because I said that was, I think the base of my self-loathing was hearing that the person that I was connected to the most, this God, um, the creator divine, didn't love me because I was different or didn't love LGBTQ people. And it just didn't feel good to me. Um, and then, so as an adult in this moment, I was like, I have to help other people that are in those similar situations. And part of that is to get education and I'm doing my dissertation around um, religious trauma and post-traumatic spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. So essentially growth after trauma um, in a spiritual manner. So looking at that for LGBTQ people, hoping that it sets as a foundation for other 
future research around um, well, post-traumatic growth and spiritual growth, but also more looking at the LGBTQ plus community and how religion and spirituality have affected that and how we can pull people back to some type of divinity. So that's my, that's my personal goal. And it really aligned with my book because, you know, my drug dealer brought me to God is really about my journey. It's a hybrid between a memoir and a self-help book. So there's a 40 page workbook in it um, that really kind of initially digs into your trauma. And then eventually by the end, um, there's, it's like half, half trauma-based, half experience-based from your childhood, from your adult life. And then it shifts to like, well, now that we examine this trauma and examine these experiences, how can we grow and learn from them and make these, have these lessons and exercises? So there's exercises kind of the second half of that workbook. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a two-part workbook, follows along with the chapters of the book, essentially through my journey, through, um, you know, through my spiritual awakening, through, um, through my education journey, through my nonprofit journey, through this journey of learning how to love and accept myself and, and, and knowing that like, I'm not hundred percent there. Like I'm still working. And that's part of my journey is that as I learn and grow about myself, then I'm able to help other people as I keep pulling myself out of the hole or pull myself farther up into the house, as you'd say, I'm able to really disseminate that light and help others. But I'm still kind of like in the midst of that journey of like, true self-love and true self-acceptance but i've made such huge strides from like that sub-basement level to the basement to the first floor to the second and i'm still kind of working you know i don't like to always look at it like a ladder but i i look at it as kind of just ascension and as i you know raise my vibration and my awareness i'm also able to see more about things in my life that i might you know continue to work on yeah. um so the, yeah. the book was really pulled out from that like i wanted to help people on their journey. I wanted people to see that their story was important. Like no matter who you are, you have a story to share. You don't have to write a memoir. You don't have to write a book if you don't want, but you can share it with the waiter at the restaurant. You can share it with a friend that might be struggling with something. You can share it in a group and a nonprofit and a faith-based organization. You can share it, you know, with a stranger on the street, because when you share your story, I promise you it makes impacts for people. It plants seeds. It lets people see that, we all are on different paths and that's okay. But the, but the path is always leading to love. Yes. That, that love is the love is the piece that, that unites us all. That is like this commonality of everyone's mission. No matter what your mission is, you can find how you can extract why that's a love-based mission. You yeah. know, when you're having a true mission that you're on from the divine that's guided, it's love. I mean, it's it, in the end, it's, it's all love. So it is and when we realize it's love love is life it's the essence of if, if you're alive love is wanting to extend through you i absolutely love that ryan you have you know such a beautiful beautiful job of using your descent into the 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 darkness and used it as you are arising out of that darkness as you're expanding out of the place of such deep disconnection you are reconnecting to the truth of who you are in a way that is so not only wonderful and beautiful but to help others connect i found that i i had my greatest leaps the more i was teaching and, and helping others and then when I realized, oh, wow, I don't help anybody connect to God. I am just sharing how I connected 
to God, how I found my way, because we, we can't heal anybody. We can't make anybody whole. First of all, everybody already has that in them. It's just how did I tap into that? How did I plug back into that which is available to all of us? Because it's our birthright and you're doing it so beautifully. So if people want to find you, want to order your book, tell us about how they can connect with you. Yeah, you can find me on ryanjosephallen.com. Um, Allen is A-L-L-E-N. Or you can just go to my drug dealer, brought-me-to-god.com. Um, you can it's going to take you to the same place, um, but I have both of those domains so that you can easily find me. Um, the book, here's my proof. Um, I it's 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 like getting uploaded onto Amazon like soon, but official launch date is the 28th. So like I say soon because like today or tomorrow it could be uploaded, but the official launch don't buy it until the, the launch date. <laughs> but you can buy it on the 28th. It will be in a hardcover um paperback and ebook and i'm going to run a special on launch day between 11 a.m and 1 p.m eastern standard time on the 28th um my ebook will only be 2.99 um and that will include you can also download the workbook from my website for free that way that you can have a printable version of it um and feel free to buy the, the paperback and hardcover as well, but please buy the ebook because that helps me become an Amazon bestseller. Um, <laughs> so that's yeah. what's going on for that day. But I'm so excited. Like I said, my main mission here is just to share, share my story in a way that helps bridge people back to whatever divinity or love that they're seeking or, or looking for. Or um, And then also to, to know that you have a story to share. Like if my drug dealer didn't share with me her story about faith, I wouldn't be in the place I am, or I might be, but I would have taken a different route or path there. Her sharing her story, just like that two hour conversation or hour conversation changed my whole life. So yeah. don't don't discount your story. Um, you have an important story to share and please share it with people because it really does heal the world. It helps raise our vibration and it really does, um, you know, bridge these gaps and in, in all kinds of parts of life. And it really brings love to the world. So it, it does. And you, you by sharing your journey and your mission, help me accomplish my mission with these, these conversations aligned with Lina, you help bring a story. Uh, you shared your path, you shared so much of what has been labeled uh, bad or wrong. You know, you're not only are we talking about drugs, we're talking about alcohol, we're talking about cutting, we're talking about being LGBTQ plus, all of these things that we have as a society accepted that shaming it and making it wrong was okay. And you are literally in one book, in one story, in one life, you are bringing so many things together into the place that soon we're going to drop all those labels. It won't matter what gender you are. It won't matter what color you are. Those things we use only because our ego uses them for separation and division, but it doesn't matter what your circumstances is. We're all on the same journey to self-love. We're all on the same journey to the truth of who we are. So thank you for fulfilling your mission and, and helping those who that particular story will resonate with them until we get to the point that there are no more stories that divide us. So thank you, beautiful soul. I am so grateful that you said yes to this interview. Uh, my life's touched by it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. And and if I can just leave you with one thing, it's, it's really simple. It's 
it's three words. It's the name of our nonprofit that we started years ago, but it's love must win. Mm -hmm. Period. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I, I know that love definitely has already won because we are all feeling the call towards it. So thank you so much. And I will bring more interviews and you can just keep checking in Align with Lionel Mondays at 12 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Keep bringing people who will inspire you because just as we have done the work that we have to realign with source within us, whatever you want to call it, anybody can. Thank you so much and have a magnificent day. Bye-bye.